today. It is always a joy to be with you and a privilege to be in front of you to bring God's word to you today. The reality of us departing for the PC in Louisville is becoming more real as we um, have sent out now fund, some fundraising emails and we just uh, landed an apartment this past week, so it's starting to feel real. Time will go by fast and we're treasuring our time with you this summer. Precious, precious times. Almost all of the most famous betrayals were surprises to the victims. General George Washington would not have given his esteemed Major General Benedict Arnold command of the fort at West Point if he knew that Arnold was planning on giving it away to the British and joining their ranks. If Julius Caesar knew that senators were planning on stabbing him to death, I bet he would have skipped that meeting at the Theater of Pompeii. Just a guess. If Han Solo knew that his old friend Lando had already made a deal with Darth Vader to turn him over, I doubt Han would have felt safe parking the Millennium Falcon at Cloud City for refuge. If these three historical titans <laughs> knew that betrayal was coming, they probably would not have done the same thing or associated with the same people. One major exception sticks out. Christ selected Judas to be in his closest circle of friends. We know that Christ not only kept Judas around, but he chose him, loved him, taught him, washed his feet, broke bread with him, fully knowing that doing so would cost him his life. There's nothing in our world that reflects that choice. It's so foreign to the way we think and act in self-protection. In the Old Testament, no book illustrates this choice more clearly, in my mind, than the book of Hosea. You can turn there now. And I will do so as well, because I forgot to do so prior. Hosea is a minor prophet between Daniel and Joel. Hosea's message and his life illustrates this idea of committing oneself fully and completely and eternally to another, knowing full well they will sin against you, hurt you, and reject your love. Hosea ministered as a prophet around the same time as Isaiah, but he received an extra assignment that Isaiah was never given. The Lord called Hosea to ministry by instructing him to marry a woman who was a known prostitute, Gomer. He called him to commit himself to her, even at one point buying her back after she abandons him to live with another man. This image of an unequally yoked family is a theme all throughout this book. As the Lord called Hosea to do this to illustrate how God loves his people, how God loved his people, Israel, kept his covenant with them, even as they chased after idols, even as they did not reciprocate his love. This same theme covers our passage, but from a different, slightly different perspective. Here, God uses the illustration of a relationship of a father with his kids. How timely. Happy Father's Day. 
Let's read. I will begin reading in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. These are the words of the Lord. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I had healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Let's pray. Lord, with confidence, we come before the throne of grace, for we know that our Father sits there. Lord, may we hear your voice, your pardoning voice, and know that we are reconciled. Father, you own us as your children. Help us to no longer fear. Show us Christ. Make him large in our eyes. Spirit, come and speak to us. Speak, Lord, we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. In our series, Gentle and Lowly, so far we have largely covered and focused on the heart of Christ, and rightfully so. It is in Christ that we most clearly see sacrificial love. In Christ, we most clearly see a gentle and lowly heart, and the cross is the greatest demonstration of love and grace. Sometimes, though, in our finite minds, we can simply see Jesus as the soft, kind, tolerant, New Testament part of God, while the Father is the stern, distant, Old Testament judge. Almost as if God the Father couldn't wait to bring fire and brimstone from on high, and Jesus was the compassionate one who stepped in for us and held him back. We must have a fuller picture than that. What I believe the Spirit has for us today, and the main point of this beautiful passage, is 
that Jesus is the revelation of the Father's heart for his wayward kids. Jesus is the revelation of the Father's heart for his wayward kids. Why? There are four reasons I'm going to touch on today. First, Jesus is the revelation of the Father's heart for his wayward kids so that his kids would recognize. Recognize. This is in verses 1 through 4. Recognize what? What do we, what do his people fail to see, to realize? Much. But here's two specific things. Our Father's call and our Father's care. First, the call. In verse 1, that God called Israel his people. And he was not ashamed to be called their God from the outset. God chose them when they were small, identified himself with them when they were nondescript and otherwise insignificant to the world, knowing that they would worship idols over and over. That says a lot about the heart of God for the lowest and the least, which was also modeled by the ministry of Christ while he was on earth. And God delights to call us his people and set his love upon us. He knows our frame. He knows our flesh, our smallness, and our propensity to disobedience. But that doesn't deter him from covenanting himself to us. In fact, it's his stated reason why he called us. Left to ourselves, we would ignore and even avoid the call. We often don't recognize his care either. In the first four verses, God the Father compares Israel to a young child, a toddler. And the dear, tender love that they would understand a father would have. We are also shown how ignorant the child is of that care. Children, uh, infants definitely, toddlers absolutely, even teenagers and adult children sometimes often don't realize how much care they're receiving, don't do they? And they can lash out when they don't get what they want, how they want it, when they want it. They often don't know what, what they need. In contrast, there's a little boy named Gray that I noticed on social media a few months back. He's a two-year-old, and the videos are supercuts of real-life scenes where his mother, who is holding the cell phone camera, gives him food and drink, various food and drink, day after day. Each time he receives it, looks up sweetly and eagerly, and says a cheerful, thank you, Mama. Thank you. No matter what he's handed. And he looks at his food excitedly, And sometimes he's wiggling in eagerness. An absolute dream of a kid. This video is so popular because it's so cute. He has cheeks for days. But also, I expect it's so popular because it's so uncommon. He provokes joy. But even little Gray, as grateful as he appears to be, he doesn't have the capacity to understand or quantify the work the care, the effort, the energy, and resources required from his mom to give him these unique gifts every day. Maybe you have a friend 
that doesn't appreciate or even seem to know how much you have invested in that relationship. Acts of sacrificial care seem to go unnoticed. Or you have a child who assumes upon your kind gifts as the baseline, and the more you love them, the more unhappy they seem to become. We treat our Father, we treat God like that all the time. But He doesn't withhold His care, His gifts, His protection, His healing until we can recognize it and appreciate it. But He loves us through our wanderings and through our perceptive limits. On that, sometimes we look for miraculous gifts or signs from God so that we can know his love. And we miss what we see as mundane. The teaching to walk. The healing, the easing of our yoke. Our very perception of his love, like everything else, is stained by our sin and our experience of the fallen world as the norm. Dane Ortland pointed to Christ's earthly ministry as a means to reverse our perception of what love is and can be. He says Christ's was a ministry of giving back to undeserving sinners their very humanity. We tend to think of the miracles of the Gospels as interruptions in the natural order. And we look for something similar in our lives from God, maybe. And we feel unloved. But in reality, he goes on, the miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. We are so used to a fallen world that sickness, disease, pain, and death seem natural. But in fact, they are the interruption. He quotes theologian Jürgen Moltmann, who says, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Christ, church, is currently, Adam said this before, he's currently making all things new. And he's already started. Our Father is calling us to look with fresh eyes for us to know that he is the one who feeds, who heals, who protects, who guides, and grows us. That is the miracle of his care. And the miracles often seem small. But all are an expression of his tender care for his kids. He restores our humanity and is calling us to himself. So first, Jesus is the revelation of the father's heart for his wayward kids so that his kids would recognize. Second, so that his kids would be returned. Returned. Verses five through seven. The Lord has, verse four, bent down to them and fed them. But what does that reveal? Verse 7, his people are bent on turning away from him. Our, not, our natural bent is not towards our Father, but away from him. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, we are prodigals by nature. In August 1923, Frank and Elizabeth Brazier were visiting relatives in Walcott, Indiana. 
While there, they realized their two-year-old Scotch Collie English Shepherd mix, a dog named Bobby, was gone. After an exhaustive search, the heartbroken Brazier family were unable to find Bobby and continued their trip before returning home by car to Silverton, Oregon, expecting never to see their dog again. But in February of 1924, six months later, a now three-year-old Scotch Collie English Shepherd mix arrived in Silverton, mangy, dirty, and scrawny with his toenails worn down to nothing. The braziers could not believe it. It was Bobby. Every, uh, he showed all the signs of having walked the entire distance, including swimming rivers, crossing plains, and climbing over the Rocky and Cascade mountain ranges during the coldest part of the winter before arriving back home. Bobby had crossed at least 2,551 miles to reunite with his owners, an average of approximately 14 miles per day. Every service station that the braziers stopped at, months later, Bobby would arrive, desperately following the long left-behind scent of his owners. His story drew national attention, and he even starred in the 1924 silent film The Call of the West as himself. He was known as, his great nickname, Bobby the Wonder Dog. <laughs> as dedicated and driven as Bobby was to get back home, that is how dedicated and driven my flesh is to get away from my father. Think of when you played with magnets as a child. With a strong magnet, there is no earthly way to get sides that repel to stick. You can hold them together as tight as you can, but your strength will wear out. And the natural bent, the law of nature, will take hold. My sinful flesh wants nothing to do with the holiness, the kingship, and even the fatherhood of God. This is the situation that God was speaking to in verses 5 through 7, saying that he will humble his people and not give them what they wanted. They have refused to turn to him, verse 5, and yet call out to him to raise them up in verse 7, yet without repentance. And his treatment of them might seem harsh, but we tell ourselves God is holy, so he has to respond in anger. Israel must have finally crossed the line, and God has had enough. And we might be living in fear of being in the same place. Something happens in our lives that is bad, and we might think it is the first domino to fall of our own destruction, a sign that God has finally withdrawn his care and his love and his affection and has come in judgment. We often mix up what Puritan Thomas Goodwin calls God's natural work and his strange work, what comes naturally to him and what he must generate. What is innate versus what must be put on. God is holy, we understand, and therefore wrath and judgment against sin must be his natural knee-jerk response. And grace, love, and tenderness is his strange work, the exception to the rule. But God's own word disagrees. 
Lamentations 3, 31 through 33 says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He does not willingly afflict. He does not afflict from his heart. But when he regularly, regularly shows compassion, it is out of the abundance of his steadfast love. Love and grace are his actual natural work. What comes most naturally to him and readily out of him. Not just the Son or the Spirit, but the Father as well. Jonathan Edwards adds, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways and he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God who delights in mercy and judgment is his strange work. God, as we will see later, is not giving up on Israel here nor is he smiting them in his rage. He is disciplining them. The natural, painful result of us being bent away from God. The further we get away from God, the worse the consequences can be. But he also says, back in verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt. That would be God giving up on them breaking his promise when he initially called them out of Egypt in verse 1, when he freed them from slavery there. If left to their own devices, Israel would have already been back there. Captivity in Assyria was no fun, but Israel would eventually return back to the promised land. Discipline is not pleasant, but painful. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ your God will not abandon your soul. You have been freed from your Egypt, Christian. You've been freed from your slavery to sin, and while you still feel the effects of your sin, Christ has set you free, and your Father has ensured you will not be enslaved to sin again. Fathers, maybe at one time or another, you took a little pleasure in judgment or in punishment of your kids. Perhaps you were personally wronged, and in response, you corrected, not primarily out of righteousness and love, but in anger and self-defense. Maybe that defined your relationship with your father growing up. Hear this, church. Your heavenly father has never been that way with you. He's never been that way with you, and he never will. Church, even when you have felt the consequences of your sin, when you have been disciplined by God, not a shred of vindictiveness or withdrawal came from your father. What you felt was a tender, gentle, active, rebending back towards him. God did not turn his back on you. He has turned you back towards him. It would be unloving to leave you exactly as you are. 
Hebrews reminds us, have you forgotten that exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He, God, is treating you as his children, which you are if you have put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Did my father discipline me perfectly growing up? No. But no matter what disciplinary action he was bringing to me, I would have a case prepared, a defense ready. What sticks with me are the conversations with him sitting on the end of the bed or on the side of the tub facing me and saying something like, Philip, this is my least favorite thing to do in the world. I don't want to make you sad, take your favorite things away or make you feel pain, but I would not be loving you if I let you do whatever you wanted. The embarrassment, shame, or pain you might feel is not nearly as painful as the sin that you do not repent of. That would disarm me. And while I knew I wouldn't feel great afterwards, I knew that my dad loved me. Children, see the discipline of your parents as them expressing love to you in the most difficult way, but God calls them to do it because it is necessary. Parents, pray that committed love, not reactive anger, defines the tone of your correction. And may the way your heavenly father has treated you inform how you reprove your children. Third, Christ is the revelation of the father's heart for his wayward kids so that his kids would be retained. From verse 8, retained. What comfort this gives me. Christ expresses, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Paul says he is sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And here we see the Father. And we hear from his heart. We hear from him himself. We get a glimpse of the why, the motivation, the eternal fireplace that is our Father's heart. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? He doesn't have it in himself to give up on his kids, to let them stumble into destruction. He hasn't even wondered about it. He is that committed. And God gives four names in this verse. Let's look at the first two. Ephraim, the youngest son of Joseph and the half-tribe that came from him. His granddad, Israel, formerly known as Jacob. Neither were the firstborn. Neither were the firstborn to their earthly father, both the secondborn. But both of them received blessings in Genesis 27 and 48, blessings that were customarily set aside for the firstborn. In fact, he gives us an inheritance to the younger sibling, only deserved by the older sibling. This is an unearthly kind of love. We receive the inheritance of our older sibling, Christ. Our Father will never give up on those who have come to him, confess their sins, trust in his Son, and call him Abba, Father. And the Spirit is the gift given to us as a guarantee 
of that inheritance. We have a Father, a Savior, and a Spirit that have joyfully dedicated himself to seeing us through. Some of you aren't doubting the faithfulness of God in saving you, but you do doubt whether his love for you is relentless. You feel like he's fed up with you or he regrets saving you. Hear these words and allow the love of your father to wash over you today. Your sins affect his heart. They do. But his heart turns over. The word translated recoil here has the image of a heart flipping over. And the compassion grows warm and tender. If it helps, think of a magnet turning over so that it attracts that which was once repelled by it. Church, I cannot stress this enough. I don't care about what you've done. I don't care about what you've said, what you've thought. There is not a shred, a shred of buyer's remorse in God. Your father is not taking you back to the adoption agency. No, he will keep you forever. His heart burns for you with a holy love and compassion that keeps you and treasures you. He never loses his own and instead showers us with undeserved, inappropriate riches and favor. Child of God, you are not too far off for his grace to reach you. Where your sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. When you repent, when you turn your heart towards him, it's not on you to make the trek all the way back to God. Your sins and your weaknesses stoke the fire of his compassion. He has pursued you in Christ and is right there the moment you turn around back home and the father runs to embrace you in his arms. Does that not cause your heart to melt? I hope it does. Lastly, four, so that his kids would be rescued. Verses eight and nine. There are two other names in verse eight. They're places. Adma and Zeboim were two smaller sister cities that had made alliances with the nearby, famously debased cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. According to Deuteronomy 29, these two smaller cities experienced the same fiery judgment that fell upon the larger two. How can Israel not be treated that way? when they too have worshipped idols and have sinned greatly, repeatedly, despite the fact that God called them. Romans 3 says that God in his divine forbearance had passed over former sins, but he could not pass over them forever. They needed, we need, holy compassion to overwhelm holy wrath because we were still living in our sin. Christ was our propitiation, our atonement, sent by the Father in order for God to be righteous in his compassion. Christ obeyed the Father where his kids did not. He kept the covenant where his people broke it, and he died so that his obedience might be credited to his own. Nancy Guthrie says, Israel 
was God's beloved son, yet this son was disobedient and disloyal. For Israel to experience all of the father's covenantal blessings would require that another son, the true Israel, walk in perfect obedience before him in Israel's stead. Jesus was not just the savior of Israel. In fact, he was the embodiment of all that Israel was meant to be. The disciple Matthew tells us in the second chapter of his gospel that Joseph and Mary fleeing to Egypt with young Jesus to escape Herod was actually the ultimate fulfillment of this first verse I read today. Out of Egypt I called my son. Only Christ could obey that call. Verse 2, and the response, in contrast to what's said in verse 2, in and the response of every call that the Father gave him, our Savior said, not my will, but yours be done, Father. Where Israel, in verse 2, sacrificed to Baals and idols, Jesus became the perfect sacrifice for our idolatry. Verse 3, Jesus took many, including us, up by our arms, made the lame walk, and healed, saying, your faith has made you well making it unmistakable that our restoration was by his hand. Verse 4, the friend of sinners drew us with his cords of love and tightly bound us to him. He has yoked us to him with a light and easy yoke and a gentle, lowly heart. And the perfect lamb of God is the only good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, who knows his own. And now, his own known, know him. What a glorious Savior we have. And by him, we know our creator and sustainer as our Father with a love deep and vast beyond all measure. As limitless as he is, his love is limitless because God is love. God the Father did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. So, how will he not also, with Christ, graciously give us all things? The Father did so, knowing that we would betray him and crucify his Son. He gave his only begotten Son, knowing that we would still sin against him and not recognize his care for us. But he so loved the world. Rest in the Father's love today. He is God and not a man. Let us not import our experience of fatherhood on our heavenly Father, but vice versa. If our dad was withholding or harsh, our Father clings to us with a gentle yet unbreakable commitment. Where our heart is false and it fails, his is unfailing and eternal. He has given us his love so that we might love one another. And he, through Christ, is in our midst, never again to come in wrath. He is near to us. Let's praise the Father for revealing his heart to us by giving us his son. Amen.